Would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. The text I listed for this week was Romans 3.27 through 4.25, but I am only going to cover chapter 4 this morning, which is plenty. I attended a funeral this week at another church, and what I heard at that funeral was very different than what I hear at the funerals in this church. I was at a funeral in this church last week. What I heard at the funeral in this other church this week was very different. To be frank, the preacher's sermon made me sick to my stomach. I thought of the founder of that church's denomination. He would be rolling in his grave if he heard that sermon. But after I left, I thought, Josh, you shouldn't be surprised by this message that you heard. This preacher was simply articulating an almost universal assumption that I hear from so many. I heard it at two or three other funerals last year. I hear it on the lips of so many people. A universal assumption that leads people to have confidence that most people are going to heaven. Have you noticed that? Most people are confident that their loved one is now in heaven. Now, there are different reasons for this basic assumption, but the assumption is pretty widespread. One of the reasons for this assumption is simply a view that a loving God could not condemn anyone to hell. That was not the assumption of the preacher I heard this last week. Her assumption was grounding in something different. She grounded it in the belief that if you simply have some vague faith in God, even better, maybe some vague faith in Jesus, that you'll be all right. You'll go to heaven. But most people have a more concrete view than that view. Most people believe that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then in the end you will be safe from God's judgment. And isn't it interesting? The good deeds, bad deeds scale. That the math almost always seems to work in the favor of the one who is deceased. Now please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that I think that the person who died last week, the person whose funeral I attended, is in hell. It is not my job or anybody else's job to judge whether or not somebody is in heaven or in hell. I'm not saying that the preacher got it wrong. I'm simply saying that in that sermon, there was a complete absence of any biblical grounding for the assumption that this person 
was in heaven. But she gave everybody there confidence that everybody there would one day be in heaven. The Bible, friends, is very clear on these matters. The hope of heaven is grounded only in the help that comes from heaven, grounded only in confidence in Jesus Christ. Specifically, in what He has done for us on the cross. Not some vague belief in Jesus, but a very specific belief that He is the Son of God who has saved His people from their sins. Not some vague faith in God. Certainly not any hope that our deeds will earn us God's favor. The hope of glory is found only in the grace of Jesus Christ. Any other hope is a hollow hope. There's no bottom to it. The people at that funeral needed to hear that. Everybody in the world needs to hear that. You and me need to hear that and be reminded of that again and again. Over the last few weeks, Paul has made all of this very clear that apart from Christ, none are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, and as sinners, we are all under the wrath of God. We will all, apart from Christ, face the judgment of God. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There is no work that we can do. Only the work of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let me put it real simple. He died for our sins. He was raised on the third day. Only those who trust in His work on the cross can be made right with God. Only those who have faith in Him will be declared righteous, not guilty, by God, which is what we mean by justified. Last week, Paul taught clearly that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This week, the argument is the same. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But he wants to draw out a number of implications to that truth. And he does so by way of an illustration. The illustration of the life of Abraham. Abraham's life, specifically his faith, teaches us something about justification by faith. There are three broad truths that we're going to cover this morning. It's not my custom to do this, but I'm going to, just so you know where we're going. I'm going to give you the points now. You don't need to write them down. They'll come up on the screen as we go along. But the first implication of justification by faith, that means that all pride is excluded. Second, justification by faith means that all peoples, all nations are included in the family of God. Third, Those who are justified by faith have confidence 
in God's promises grounded in God's power to raise the dead. So three implications of the doctrine of justification. Let's begin with the first. Justification by faith means that faith excludes all pride. Faith alone excludes all pride. This comes out in verses 1 to 8. Let me begin by reading those verses. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sins. In Paul's day, there were many rabbis who were teaching that Abraham gained God's favor through living a godly life. They believed that he was made right by God through his faithfulness to God, not simply his faith in God's promises to him. What an error, right? It's the same today. Almost every religion in the world believes something almost identical to that. And that way of thinking has even crept in to the church. But Paul says it's all wrong. If Abraham's standing before God was because of his works, he, he tells us that he would have something to boast about. He'd have something to be proud of. But Paul goes on to say, not before God. What does he mean by that? I think what he means is that when you consider God's perspective, you have no reason to boast before God or before anybody for that matter. You can't place any confidence in yourself. From man's perspective, we may think that our deeds are pretty good or at least not as bad as the person sitting next to us this morning. But from God's perspective, as we have heard from God's word, none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When you consider it from God's perspective, you have no reason to boast. And so Abraham has no reason to boast about his standing before God. And if Abraham, the father of all of the Jews who are the most privileged people to have ever lived at the time Paul is writing, if they have no reason to boast before God, then guess what? None of us do. The Bible teaches something very different about Abraham than the prevailing view in Paul's 
day. This comes out in verse 3, quoting Genesis 15, 6. It says this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't his righteousness that made him right with God. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God made promises to Abraham. Promises that he would make him into a great nation. That he would give him descendants as numerous as the stars. That he would give those descendants the promised land. And that from his offspring, from those descendants, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham believed this promise. And Paul tells us that because Abraham believed this promise, God counted it to him as righteousness. Through faith in the promise, God credited to Abraham's account righteousness. Abraham wasn't righteous. So counting it to him as righteous was not his righteousness. Look at verse 5. We are told that he and everybody else was ungodly, even Abraham. But through faith, God declares Abraham righteous. God put a righteousness outside of Abraham into his account. This is what we mean when we say a person is declared righteous, that he is justified. He has a righteousness that is outside of himself. So when Paul uses the word counted, he's using accounting language. Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. The person who works deserves their wages. They've earned their wages. They could even boast in their accomplishments. But the person who receives a gift doesn't work for the gift. They don't earn the gift. If they do, then it ceases to be a gift. Paul says faith is like receiving a gift. And when you receive a gift, you don't boast that you've earned it. You give thanks to the one who has given it. Verse 5 summarizes all of this. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Think about a bank account or an investment portfolio. You earn a lot of money and you put that money wisely into an account, into investments. And that's something, if you have some level of humility, to be proud of. But what if all of that money in your account, all of that money in your investments, came from a wealthy relative who gave it to you as an inheritance? You would have no right to brag about the size of your portfolio. If you did, there would be something wrong with you. It is a gift. Something to be given thanks for, not something to boast in. That's what God did for Abraham. That's what God does for all who place their faith in Christ. We do not earn a right standing before God. We receive a right standing 
before God. It's not our righteousness that saves us. It's a righteousness from God, a righteousness outside of us. The Reformers called it an alien righteousness that is to be received through faith. The righteousness of Christ, as theologians say, is imputed to us. Righteousness of Christ transferred into our account. But that's not all. God also cancels the debt that we owe if we place our faith in Christ. Remember what Paul says in Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. All that our deeds have earned us is God's judgment. But Paul, quoting David in Psalm 32, verses 6 to 8, says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So through faith in Christ, as we learned last week, our debt is paid. Our sins are forgiven. That's good news, right? But that still only brings the account up to zero. Thanks be to God that in addition to canceling our debt, paying our sin through faith in Christ, God puts Christ's rich righteousness into our account so that we are abounding with the riches of God's grace. So that God will look on the righteousness of Christ instead of looking on our unrighteousness and our ungodliness. It is His righteousness that makes us right with God. You have to understand that. If you were to understand the gospel, it's not just that Christ paid for your sins. That's great. It's also that He has counted to you as righteous. You who are unrighteous. Righteousness, a righteousness that is not your own, but that is Christ. We don't earn an ounce of our salvation. Justification is through faith alone in Christ alone. We receive what Christ has done for us and all that Christ is for us by faith as a gift. It's the only way, the only way to be made right with God. There is no other way. Do you grasp that? And if that is the case, if it's all by grace, we have no reason to boast or to think highly of ourselves. But we have every reason to boast in Christ and to think highly of Him. You see, if salvation is entirely by grace, then all of the glory goes to God. Now let's look at the second implication of justification by faith alone. Faith alone not only excludes all pride, faith alone also includes all peoples into the family of God. Faith alone includes all of the nations into the family of God. This comes out in verses 9 to 16. Let me begin by simply reading verses 9 to 12. Is this blessing, the righteousness given, the sins forgiven, 
Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Again, a little bit of historical context may help you understand what Paul is doing here. In the Old Covenant, the law laid out a number of ways to be identified, marked off as the people of God, so that people would know that you were in relationship with God. There were food laws. There were um, laws about going to the festivals annually, three festivals a year. There were laws about the Sabbath that marked people off as the people of God. But circumcision came to be a placeholder for all that was represented in the law, is marking off the people of God, showing that a person was in right relationship with God. Abraham was the father of all of the Jews, and he was circumcised. And so for most Jews, it was the law and circumcision that identified a person as being a descendant of Abraham, an heir to the promises that were made to him. But Paul is using Abraham here to show that we are not justified by works of the law, we are justified by faith alone. And everyone who has confidence in Christ, this is the point, is a rightful descendant of Abraham. The way he makes his argument is by reminding his readers that God counted Abraham's faith to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. Actually, 13 years before he was circumcised. His circumcision played no role in justification. What was the role of circumcision then? It was a sign that he was already declared righteous, that he had already, by God, had counted righteousness to him, a sign and a seal of that. In a similar way that we say that baptism is an outward sign, of an inward reality that God has accomplished in our lives. One implication of this is that you don't have to be circumcised to be justified. All that matters is faith. Or, to put it in more layman's terms, you don't have to be a Jew to be righteous in God's sight. And even those who are Jews, even those who are circumcised, Paul says they must have faith in Christ if they are going to be counted is righteous. 
Circumcision did not do the trick for the Jews. In fact, no work of the Jewish law can make a person right with God. But the same principle applies to all of us today. There is no religious ritual that can make you right with God. Baptism will not do the trick for you. Church attendance, your participation in, your place in a Christian home, your attendance in a Christian school, no external things, no external works, no external signs make you right with God. We are justified through faith alone in Christ alone. Paul, beginning in verse 13, tells us what's at stake if we don't get this truth. Verses 14 and 15, he says, For if it is adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Why? For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let me put this as simple as I can. What Paul is saying here is if righteousness is dependent upon the law, circumcision in his original context, but if it is dependent on any work of the law, then we're all in really big trouble. That's what he's saying. What he is saying is that none of us can keep the law. Therefore, none of us will inherit the promises that God has made if it is dependent upon keeping the law. What does the law do? It does a number of things, but one of the things that it does is it reveals that we are sinners who deserve God's wrath. Our only hope is to place our faith in God's promises that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus, not through our works. Or, to just say it again, Our only confidence is in Christ. The major implication that Paul is making here is that the gospel is therefore for all peoples, all nations, not just the Jews. Abraham is the father of all who, like him, believe the gospel. The father of all who are justified by faith, as verse 17 says. I have made you the father of many nations. Why is Paul making this point? How is it relevant for us? I think he's keen on making this point for a couple of reasons. First of all, so that certain people will not boast. We've already covered that. But the other reason is so that his readers and we would really come to grasp the significance that the gospel is for all peoples. Remember, What is Paul hoping from the Romans, the church that he is writing to? He's hoping that they will support him in his missionary to take the gospel to the nations. Just like First Free supports S and A in their work of taking the gospel wide. He is teaching us that the gospel is not just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles because he is so intent on serving in his role as an apostle to the Gentiles. What is the takeaway for us in that? If the gospel is for all peoples, then we need to take it to all peoples. 
That may mean that some of you are being called by God to go and do that. But I'm confident that what it means is that all of you are to be involved in the work of seeing the gospel go to the nations. Let me encourage you. Get the monthly missions prayer page. Pray through that. When you hear an announcement that a missions partner is coming to First Free and there's going to be a lunch after church, go to that. Receive their emails. Pray for them. If the gospel is for all peoples, then isn't the application that we should be involved in taking the gospel to all peoples? Paul wants us to see that this is the truth. Justification by faith alone teaches us that all pride is excluded. It teaches us that all peoples are included through faith in Christ alone. But what exactly is the nature of saving faith? And that leads us to the third truth about justification by faith. It is this. Those justified by faith have confidence in God's promises grounded in God's power to raise the dead. Now, I know that that's a much longer point, but I think in light of some of what I said earlier in my introduction, it is so important that we get this. We are not talking about general faith in God. We are talking specifically about confidence in God's promises that are grounded in God's power, a power evidenced in his ability to raise the dead. This comes out in verses 17 to 25. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, speaking of Abraham, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake only, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham was justified by faith alone. The same is true for all. But what specifically did he believe? We've already said he believed the promises. God would make him into a great nation. And through his offspring, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. But what led him to believe this promise? God made the promises... But why did he believe that God would do what he said that he would do? 
I would say that there is a foundational belief that undergirded his belief in the promises. And that is found in verse 17. His belief that God gives life to the dead. His belief that God calls into existence the things that don't exist. That last line is probably a reference to creation. When God called into existence the things that didn't exist. When God said, let there be light, and then there was light. You see, Abraham's belief in the promise of God is predicated on his belief in God. In who God is. That God is powerful. Powerful enough to bring out of nothing something in creation. Powerful enough to raise the dead. Therefore, powerful enough to bring a great nation out of a man who doesn't even have a child at this point. That's why Paul says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. His faith in God's power trumped the facts of his predicament. His faith in God's power, they trumped the facts of his predicament. What were the facts? The facts were, this man's body was as good as dead. He's almost a hundred years old. He's long past the age of being able to father children. Not only that, his wife Sarah's womb was dead. She wasn't able to bear children either. But Abraham had a confidence that God could raise the dead. He could bring light out of darkness. He could bring life out of his dead body. Faith, not simply in some vague notion that God exists, but faith in the promises that God spoke grounded in a faith in God's power to do the impossible. He exercised the same faith later in his life when God gave him a son, as he promised, Isaac. He then asked him to sacrifice that son. And he exercised faith, as Hebrews 11 tells us, in going to obey that command. Why? Because he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. From beginning to end, Abraham had confidence in God's promises, grounded in a confidence in God's power. That is the faith that God counted to him as righteousness. Not a great, strong faith. We don't know that. Simply a faith in God and in His promises. And that is the faith that we are called to have as well, as verse 23 says. But for us, we have more to go on than Abraham did. It's not simply a general faith that God is able to raise the dead. It is a faith in a God who did raise the dead who raised his own son on the third day from the grave 
Verse 25 says, Jesus was delivered up by God for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Why does he say that? Raised for our justification or raised because of our justification. I think what he's saying is this. God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. Amen? It is only through faith in him that we can be justified and made right with God. And we can have confidence that that is the case. That God's promise is certain because God raised him from the dead. Through raising Jesus from the dead, he made it clear that his promises are sure. The resurrection of Jesus confirms that his sacrifice for our sin was sufficient. It confirms that God accepts his death for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid the price. The resurrection confirms God accepted the payment. The resurrection confirms that God has given us through faith a righteousness outside of ourselves in Christ. We may not feel like it, but we can have confidence in it because God raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection gives us confidence to believe the promises announced in the gospel. And one of those promises is this, that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise all to eternal life who are in him. You can have confidence in that. You can take that to the bank. We all one day will die. All of us will, Lord willing, have a funeral if the Lord should tarry. And when we die, all of us will face the judgment seat of Christ. Who will be able to stand on that day? Here's the good news, friends. All who are justified by faith. But only those who are justified by faith. Who will be able to stand on that day? All who God has declared righteous. But only those who God has declared righteous through faith in Christ. Who will be able to stand? All who are dressed in Christ's righteousness, but only those who are dressed in Christ's righteousness. Who will be able to stand? All who have placed their confidence not in themselves, but in the promises of God announced in the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, but only those who have placed their confidence in Christ. There is no other way to get right with God. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. Are you right with God? Have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Or let me put it this way. Have you transferred your trust in yourself to a trust in God? If you do, here's the good news. God will transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God will transfer to you the righteousness of Christ into your account. You will be forgiven of your sins. 
and given eternal life. Have you placed your confidence in Christ alone? It's the only way to be declared righteous in God's sight. And if that's true, two things. We have no reason to boast in ourselves, but every reason to boast in God. And secondly, if that's true, we have every reason in the world to go and tell people this good news. Friends, in North Africa, people don't have this good news. But you know the people in South Wichita that were hearing that message last week, they don't have it either. If it is true that we are only saved through faith in Christ, specifically a Christ who is the Son of God and who has laid down His life for our sins and been raised from the dead, if that's the only way, then we must be bold with this message because people are without hope, without it, without God in this world. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm very aware that for many in this church, all I have said is all too familiar. And yet I pray that you would help us to grasp the depths of the truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that that would cause our hearts to give you thanks and praise that it would motivate us to bear witness to the gospel of your Son. For any who are here today who have not placed their trust and their confidence in Christ, I pray that you would reveal to them the hollow hope that they have and lead them to the rock. Lead them to Christ who will give them security of salvation. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.